Welcome to Socalo Radio, the on-air home of the Socalo Public Square Lecture Series, LA's free, eclectic, and roving cultural forum. I'm Claudia Vasquez. Tonight on Socalo Radio, former Senate Majority Leader Tom Daschle outlines the themes in his book, Critical, What We Can Do About the Healthcare Crisis. When it comes to fixing our opaque, costly, and complicated healthcare system, Daschle openly wonders whether the forces of change are finally greater than the forces of the status quo. He passionately calls for all Americans to be insured by means of a health board, not unlike the Federal Reserve, that would offer a public framework within which a private healthcare system could operate more effectively and efficiently, insulated from political pressure, yet accountable to elected officials and the American people. But first, Dashiell blasts what he considers popular myths that inhibit the delivery of excellent health care in the United States. Recorded before a live audience at the Los Angeles Central Library as part of the Socalo Public Square Lecture Series, here is Tom Dashiell. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you very much for that warm reception. The whole premise of this project was in some ways motivated by my conversations with Al Gore some time ago. Al has probably done more on climate than anybody else in the country. And he did it in part out of a, the authorship of his, of his book, Earth in the Balance, and a video presentation that he has done on over 2,000 occasions now. And it just occurred to me that as powerful as that video was and as good as his book was, that we could do kind of the same thing on healthcare. The book is, is out, and I've actually got a video presentation that I'm not going to show you tonight, but I, I've taken it on the road as well, and I fully expect the, the nomination for an Oscar and a Nobel and other <laughs> things to come with it if I just get this thing right. So uh, we're going to keep working on that as well. But the premise of my book in this project is that this country can't wait much longer before it has to address meaningful health care reform. We have failed on past occasions to address it successfully, but I don't think we can fail again. And I think there's a lot to be learned from why we failed before and apply those lessons as we look to our current circumstances. And so I want to talk a little bit about that tonight talk about why I think it's so critical that we address meaningful health care reform, and then, of course, most importantly, have a discussion and a dialogue uh, with each of you. The whole issue of meaningful reform of our health care system has played itself out over the last 15 years, ever since we have recognized that what we did before was every bit as important as anything we were trying to do in public policy. We just didn't get it right. And so for the last 15 years, at four different levels, we've attempted to address health care reform even though we haven't succeeded in passing something of a comprehensive nature. There have been all kinds of proposals offered in Congress. Ron Wyden, the Congress uh, a senator from Oregon, has actually introduced a, a piece of legislation that now has 15 Republican and Democratic co-sponsors. We've passed incremental legislation like the so-called S-CHIP program, 
the state children's health insurance program that at least provided health insurance for almost 6 million kids all over the country. We still have a long way to go before we could uh, serve them all, but, but we started with that. We addressed portability. We addressed patients' bill of rights. We addressed the, the drug program in a way that I thought was almost a disaster, but nonetheless, we passed a, a drug program that, with all of its shortcomings, at least began to provide meaningful drug assistance, prescription drug assistance to senior citizens. So the congressional level was the first level. The second level was the state level. We did, we've seen a lot of effort at the state level today to address meaningful reform, including here in California. It's a sad commentary that California was unable to address it successfully, but nonetheless, the states have been very active. Uh, the third level now is the presidential campaign level. Each of the candidates have addressed it, some more than others. John McCain has acknowledged it without really being very specific about how he would address it. But certainly Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton have devoted a good deal of attention. If you look at their website, there's a very significant effort to try to lay out exactly the kind of proposals they would consider if they were elected president. Then the final level is in some ways the most intriguing, and that is the the private sector level, the businesses and organizations of all kinds that have gotten involved in the debate and offered ideas and solutions. So there's a cacophony of voices and ideas that are now coming forth in just about all different sectors of our society with a, a recognition that while we don't have a consensus, there is a louder and louder voice for change coming from all sectors of society and that we have to address it. There are really two questions that I think that we as policymakers and people interested in the issue have to consider. The first question is, have the circumstances involving health care changed enough that would lead us to believe that we've now experienced such a shift in circumstances that just those changes alone could bring about a new climate for change in meaningful health care reform? That's the first question. The second question is equally as intriguing to me, and that is, are the forces of change politically now greater than the forces of the status quo? Because every single time we've addressed meaningful health care before, health care reform, the forces of the status quo have overwhelmed uh, the forces of change. The forces of change have been on the defensive. The forces of the status quo have actually been on the offensive. We saw that again in 93 and 94. So do the forces of change today, together, all of this happening, will that be enough sufficiently to move the political effort, the climate that we have in Washington to bring about this change? Well, as to the first question, circumstances, in my view, the circumstances have changed dramatically. I think that as you look at the health care problem, it's really three problems, all very interrelated. All three problems have to be addressed if we're going to address this matter successfully. The first problem is cost. We have a huge cost problem in our health care system today, and it's only getting worse. Costs have gone up over 100% just in the last six years. We spend $7,500 per capita in health care in our country today. 
$7,500 is 40% more than the second most expensive country, Switzerland. Now, how do we pay for our health care? Well, it's sort of a misunderstood concept, really. We pay for our health care in one of three ways, and there are only three. We pay it in taxes, we pay it in premiums, and we pay it in out-of-pocket expenses. And when you add up all of the taxes, all of the premiums, all of the out-of-pocket expenses, we now commit $2.3 trillion to health care in the United States. $560 billion of that is money spent by business, which is now 120% greater than the aggregate profits of business in our country. So we spend more on health care than businesses make in profit. General Motors spends more on health care than they do on steel. Starbucks spends more on health care than they do on coffee. So we're beginning to appreciate the magnitude of the cost problem. But as, as expensive as it is, it's only going to get worse. We're told that by the year 2015, one out of every five dollars, one-fifth of our entire economy will be spent on health care. And instead of $7,500 in taxes, premiums, and out-of-pocket expenses, your cost is going to be $15,000. That's in 2015. Now the question is, how can this country afford $15,000 for every man, woman, and child in the country? I could go on and on with more and more numbers about cost. But the cost issue, more than anything else, is driving the debate today. I've had countless meetings with CEOs and chairmen of prominent corporate boards. I've had countless discussions with governors, mayors, and almost without exception, as we begin to talk about health care, the thing they talk about most is cost. But it doesn't end there. As I said, we have three major categories of problems. Cost is the first. The second problem is access. I'm sure most of you know that there are 47 million people that don't have health insurance at some point in the year. Some have it and lose it. 47 million people without health insurance. And oftentimes I've heard political leaders say, well, the default health care delivery system is the emergency room. Everybody has health care. All they have to do is go to an emergency room. Well, on the average, 500,000 ambulances, a half a million ambulances are turned away from emergency rooms all over the country every year. So this default notion of health care via emergency rooms oftentimes is false. That's an access problem. And it's not just those without insurance that have to worry about access. I used to take show of hands in audiences, and I, I got away from that because I think a lot of people, for a lot of people, it's painful to recognize or to acknowledge they don't have health insurance. But even those who have health insurance, according to the Commonwealth Fund, 
One out of every three people still with the health insurance they have don't get the health care they need. One out of every three. And if you're in states like mine, vast, big, open, wide areas with small communities and no doctors, where you have to drive 100 or 200 miles to get to a doctor or a physician's assistant, that's a problem. You're listening to Tom Daschle. This is Socalo Radio, the on-air home of the Socalo Public Square Lecture Series, LA's free, eclectic, and roving cultural forum. For information or to listen to past broadcasts, just click on our website, socalola.org. That's Z-O-C-A-L-O-L-A dot O-R-G. We'll return in a moment. Stay tuned to Socalo Radio. Weekdays on 89.3 KPCC. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. Good morning. I'm Steve Inskeep. From the studios of NPR West, this is Day to Day. I'm Alex Cohen. I'm Madeline Brand. Coming up, practicing. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Robert Siegel. This is Talk of the Nation. I'm Neil Conan in Washington. Morning Edition, Day to Day. All Things Considered. Talk of the Nation. More NPR News than anywhere else on 89.3 KPCC. You already know how to get KPCC on your radio and your computer. Now you can get NPR and KPCC News on your cell phone or PDA. Go to kpcc.org to learn about NPR Mobile from KPCC. You can get hourly headlines, news stories, or hear the Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me quiz, all whenever it's convenient for you. NPR and KPCC News on air, online, and now on the phone, too. Programming on 89.3 KPCC is made possible by the W.M. Keck Foundation, supporting community-based organizations in Southern California and advancements in science, medical research, and higher education nationwide. I'm Claudia Vasquez. This is Socalo Radio, the honor home of the Socalo Public Square Lecture Series, L.A.'s free, eclectic, and roving cultural forum. We now return to Tom Daschle. That is an access problem, and we have a lot of it on my nine Indian reservations in South Dakota. We have access problems all over my state, and I'm sure there are access problems right here in Los Angeles. So access is the second problem, and it's directly related to cost. They're interrelated. The third problem is quality. We have a real quality problem in our country. Let me start with this one. I know that we haven't had a plane crash in our country in a long time, and let's just hope it stays that way. But can you imagine a 747 crashing, how much news that would make? Well, the equivalent of a 747 crashes in our healthcare system every two and a half days. Let me rephrase that so you understand what I'm trying to say. 98,000 people a year die of medical mistakes. They die because somebody made a mistake and we don't hear anything about it. 
98,000 is the equivalent of a 747 crashing every two and a half days. You already heard what I said about cost. If we were getting what we were paying for, perhaps you could justify $7,500. But do you know where we rank in quality now? We rank about 35th. Some have even ranked us as low as 40th in overall outcome and quality today. 40th. Where would we be in the Olympics if we came in 40th? And how long would it be before we got a new coach and a new team? We rank 31st in life expectancy and 29th in infant mortality. Over 300 million medical mistakes are made on an annual basis. And our health care system is by far the least transparent of any sector in our economy today. So we don't have a clue why we rank so low. So we have a serious quality problem in this country, and it's getting worse. It's getting worse by the year. Quality Access and cost, all interrelated, all problems that we have to address, all functions of public policy. Well, some things haven't really changed. All of that has changed a lot since 1993 and 94. Some things haven't changed. What hasn't changed is the complexity of our system. We have by far the most complex health care delivery system in the world. Nothing comes close. We have special interests that benefit a lot from the fact that our country commits $2.3 trillion. The pharmaceutical industry, the insurance industry, health care providers in some cases, There are a lot of people who really have benefited a great deal from all of this money and resource that goes into our health care system today. So those things haven't changed at all. And there's something else that hasn't changed. And that's something else. Are all the myths that we've allowed to to dominate our thinking with regard to health care. And the myths are what frustrate me the most because as you get into this issue, you, you, you realize how fallacious these myths can really be. One of the myths under which so many people live today is that we have the best health care system in the world. After all, why would wealthy people from around the world come to the United States if we didn't have the best health care system in the world? Well, I describe our health care system this way. We have islands of excellence in a sea of mediocrity. We have the Mayo Clinics. I'm proud to be on the board of the trustees of the Mayo Clinic, the Cleveland Clinics, Johns Hopkins. We probably have some very good islands of excellence in California, but we have a sea of mediocrity. 180,000 people last year participated in what we now call medical tourism. Medical tourism is a growing practice in the United States where people go to other countries 
to get health care. Spent over $2 billion. 40,000 of them went to Mexico. And we expect that number to go up exponentially in coming years. Why? In part because they don't have access. In part because they can't afford an American health care system. And in part because they're worried about quality. Regardless of whether or not anybody in this room would participate in medical tourism, we have to break the myth that this is the best health care system in the world. When you spend as much as we do and end up with the results that we do, the word value never enters into the equation. And that, to me, is what our goal should be, value. The highest performance and the greatest value. And we don't have that today. A second myth is that any concept involving reform would also involve rationing. Well, we ration today on the worst possible criteria, and that is one's ability to pay or one's health condition. If you don't have the ability to pay, you don't get insurance. If you don't get insurance, you don't get access. If you have a pre-existing condition, even something like diabetes, you may not get insurance, even if you had normally the ability to pay a typical premium. And so we ration based on your current state of health or your current state of financial wherewithal. How adverse could that possibly be in a society as proud as we are of the opportunities that we'd like to think America provides every citizen? We took rationing to a new level just recently in one of my favorite states, Oregon. Some of you maybe heard about this. Oregon came to the realization that they have 600,000 uninsured 600,000 just in the state of Oregon. And they couldn't afford to provide insurance for all of these people under the current system. So they started something new. They started a lottery. So now they have a lottery in Oregon where if you are one of the lucky winners, you get health care. 24,000 of that 600,000 is all who will be served in this lottery system, at least this year. What does that say about society? That the lucky winner gets the opportunity to get health care in the United States of America in the year 2008. There's another myth that any possible solution is something we just can't afford. It would cost too much. Well, I have to tell you, I don't know what could possibly be more costly than the current system if nothing changes. I would argue we cannot afford not to change our health care system in the future. And finally, there's a myth that we have a private system in our health care, and we have to preserve this private system. We don't have a private system. We have a public private system, 45% of all Americans get their health care today from one of seven different federal programs, government programs. 
55% get it from the private sector. So we have a public-private system that is not integrated today. It's like two systems, two finance systems working side by side with no interrelationship virtually at all. And that is where part of the problem lies. 30 cents out of every dollar never gets to health care. 30 cents out of every dollar is what we spend to administer this dysfunctional health care system today. Most other countries spend half that. Medicare spends about 7 cents out of every dollar on administration. So we spend an inordinate amount of money just trying to keep this system from becoming even more dysfunctional. And that 30 cents is part of the problem we're facing today. But it's another myth, a myth that we work and live and benefit from a private system in healthcare. Well, if we're going to change this, in the past, the only way we've been able to see major change is if our country faces a crisis, as we did with world wars, as we've done with huge, major challenges our country has faced through history. Or we've been able to show the leadership that it took to pass a Medicare program in 1965 or the civil rights programs in, in the 60s. There have been occasions when we haven't been as crisis-driven as we were leadership-inspired. And the real question is, what will it be in this case? Will it be a crisis of a magnitude that could be created with some sort of epidemic or pandemic? Or will it be meaningful presidential leadership? That's a question I can't answer. But I will tell you, I think it most likely could be a combination of both. That whoever the next president's going to be is going to recognize that that crisis may just be beyond the next corner. And that to avert a real crisis, we've got to come to grips with this. And I believe it could possibly happen as early as this time next year. Just 12 months from now, we could be in the middle of a national debate on health care. So I'd like to share with you, if I could, what I consider to be, and I'll, I'll, I'll go through this reasonably quickly, the 10 building blocks of a better system. I want to touch on those quickly and, and then move to a couple of other thoughts, and then we'll open it up for your questions. The first building block is probably, in most respects, the most important. The first building block has to be coverage for all Americans. Now, right away, people say, well, if we have coverage for everybody, it's got to cost more. Well, every experience we've seen in every other country that has universal coverage has been able to demonstrate that we actually bring down the cost because we're able to better manage our system if everybody's in the tent, rather than to have huge percentages of people outside the tent, rather than those percentages of people who are forced to use the so-called default care now in an emergency room, which is by far the most expensive way to get care. We have everybody in the tent. And so we can manage and make our system far more efficient. We would eliminate all screens. There would be no more pre-existing condition. It doesn't matter what your health care is, you're covered. We start with that, 
with the premise that you put everybody inside. And then you work on building efficiency once everybody's in this together. The second building block is that we move from this bifurcation of care. And by bifurcation, I'm talking about still this legal separation between physical care and mental care. We're the only society that does that. I believe there ought to be full access to mental health, to physical health, to long-term health, and to dental health. Because our whole picture, health-wise, is affected by each one of those aspects of healthcare delivery. And again, if we're going to control costs and build a better mousetrap, we're going to have to ensure that everything is included so that we can put it in a management framework that will allow us to address the challenges that we're facing today. Or I should say that we're failing to face today. We're ignoring them and the situation continues to worsen. So that's building block two. Building block three, we change from a sickness system to a wellness system. We recognize that if we don't keep people well, we're going to spend a lot more money trying to make them well after they're sick. All healthcare in societies all over the world looks like a pyramid. At the base of the pyramid, you have wellness and, and preventative health care delivery, and you work your way up on that pyramid until you get to the most sophisticated things at the very top, often technology-driven, heart transplants, all of the most sophisticated care that many of our islands of excellence are known for. Well, in every other society, they start at the base of the pyramid and they work their way up until the money runs out. In the United States, we start at the top of the pyramid and we work our way down until the money runs out and the money runs out. And most Americans, as a result, don't get wellness care. Of that $2.3 trillion I talked about, 3%, 3% goes to wellness and prevention. And it hasn't changed in more than 80 years as a percentage. So we have to reverse the triangle, the, the pyramid. We have to do what other societies do and start at the base and create wellness. And I'd even like to change the semantics of patienthood. I'd like us to be consumers of wellness rather than patients of sickness. Let's become consumers of wellness. You're listening to Tom Daschle. This Wednesday, May 14th, Sokolo presents A House of Horrors. Why is homeownership so elusive for so many Angelinos? Rick Wartzman, director of the Drucker Institute at Claremont Graduate University, examines the housing affordability crisis with three distinguished panelists. Sean Spear, director of major projects for the Los Angeles Housing Department. John Caraval, a housing market analyst with DataQuick Information Systems. And Ehud Mushlin, vice president of UNIDEV, a workforce housing developer. And this Thursday, May 15th, Sokolo presents Matt Welch, editor-in-chief of Reason Magazine, 
as he deconstructs John McCain. Developing the themes in his book, McCain, The Myth of a Maverick, Welch argues that the Arizona Senator's interventionist politics, at home and abroad, actually flow from the same single source. He wants to restore your faith in the federal government and in the greater cause of American exceptionalism. Admission to these and also color events is free, but reservations are required. For more information or to hear past programs and lectures, just click on our website, socalola.org. That's Z-O-C-A-L-O-L-A.org. We'll return in a moment. Stay tuned to Socalo Radio. Suffering survivors of Myanmar's cyclone need aid and need it now. The question is, how are relief agencies going to get sufficient aid to the people of Myanmar? I'm Larry Mantle. Next time on Air Talk, the president of World Vision International talks about his relief organization, its efforts in Myanmar and elsewhere. It's Air Talk, Monday morning at 10, here on 89.3 KPCC, Southern California Public Radio. The late Senator Daniel Patrick Moynihan used to say that everyone's entitled to his own opinion, but not his own facts. That's so 20th century. I'm Pat Morrison. Now we live in an age when a belief is regarded as legitimate as a fact, and there are blogs galore to back up even the most adulpated beliefs. Farhad Manju calls this a post-fact society, and he's here with his book about its implications for all of us here Monday, beginning at 1 p.m. Every day on All Things Considered, we bring you novel ideas and remarkable stories. This is really a new development. Oh my God, I will never forget that. You can't teach that kind of stuff, you just have it. We can shock them a little too. Something new, something unexpected, maybe even unforgettable on All Things Considered from NPR News. Weekday afternoon starting at 3.30 on 89.3 KPCC. Claudia Vasquez. This is Socalo Radio, the honor home of the Socalo Public Square Lecture Series, LA's free, eclectic, and roving cultural forum. We now return to Tom Daschle. The fourth building block, and one I care deeply about, is transparency. Our healthcare system is the least transparent, the most opaque, as I said a moment ago, of all of our sectors of the economy today. You don't know what the person next to you is paying. It's most likely different. You don't know the quality of care your doctor is capable of providing. You don't know the quality of care the hospital provides. We know less about our own care than we know about almost any other aspect of our lives. And yet it's the most personal. We've got to make our health care system more transparent. We've got to make you If you're going to be effective consumers, discriminating consumers, we've got to give you the tools by which to make better decisions about your health. And transparency is an essential part of that calculation. The fifth building block is to recognize that in all other countries and in parts of our own country, Healthcare uses something called best practices. We know what works and what doesn't. 
but we're very erratic in applying those best practices to medical care across, across the spectrum and across the country. We need a best practices requirement or participation among all providers for chronic care management, for all of the different aspects of healthcare delivery today. The Mayo Clinic does it. Most of our islands of excellence use best practices today, but we don't have that accepted as a premise for healthcare delivery in our country today across the board. I would be willing to go so far as to say to a doctor, if you're willing to subscribe to best practices, we would build into the system an immunity for malpractice where those patients who are subjected to whatever mistakes that come as a result of, of issues that were not known at the time could be protected, could be compensated, but the doctor himself if he or she subscribed to best practices, wouldn't be the one specifically liable. I think there is a connection there, and I think we could make it. And I think it would be one way to ensure that doctors could operate more freely and more confidently than they do today. The sixth building block is to go back to this 30% of administrative cost that I was talking about and recognize how ironic it is that you go into an emergency room and you see the single most sophisticated technology you'll probably find anywhere, but perhaps our space labs that, uh, that we find uh, in Texas and Florida. They are remarkable demonstrations of the application of technology to healthcare delivery. But then go into the administrative offices, and what do you see? You see 19th century manila folders on shelves after shelves after shelves. There is no IT. They're lucky to have a push-button phone. <laughs> we have to incorporate IT into our system. And the only way we're going to do that is to create it as a significant part of a federal building block system. The seventh block is we need to have pooling. That is, our resources have to be pooled together so we can leverage better prices. In my book, I talk about the Federal Employee Health Benefits Plan, where members of Congress can choose from an array of different plans, private plans that offer all kinds of different alternatives for, for insurance. We would do the same thing for our country as a whole. We have to get rid of, if not get rid of, we have to discourage what I call proprietary medicine. Proprietary medicine is where providers actually own the equipment that they're using to prescribe the kinds of care that we use today. It seems to me that there's a built-in incentive to overuse facilities and equipment that is owned by doctors, even if that care may be required. Number nine, the ninth building block is to recognize that nurses can play a much bigger role than they do in our medical system today. Let's delegate more responsibility to nurses and nurse practitioners. Uh, we don't do that, and we ought to. And the 10th building block is to negotiate drug prices. We do it today in the Veterans Administration with great success. Other countries negotiate drug prices with great success. We can do it too. So those are the 10 building blocks. I would create a framework within which all of this could happen. My framework is one that I've actually adapted from the Federal Reserve System. 
We have a Federal Reserve Board today that is autonomous, that has the authority to make decisions and the political insulation to be able to make them without fear of retribution. I can only imagine if Congress had been asked in the last two weeks to figure out what to do with regard to the financial crisis we're facing. And then, God forbid, raise interest rates if that time comes, and it will come at some point in the future. Can you imagine Congress being asked to do that on a regular basis? I can guarantee you from 26 years of experience, it would never happen. But that's precisely what we're being asked to do in healthcare today is make decisions on that equivalent or even greater equivalency than all of those very tough decisions the Federal Reserve Board has to make. And you don't have to agree with all of them to see what value there is. Well, I think we can take a lesson from that. I would love to see a federal health board that is created with that same decision-making authority to create the framework that I've just described and then to manage our system in a way to bring down costs, improve quality, and, and create the access that we're looking for. The goal, of course, is greater value. Greater value. Now let me just, for a second, talk a little bit about the lessons learned from the mid-1990s, and I'll end with that and take your questions. Well, the first thing I think we have to do, as I said a moment ago, is destroy the myths. If the myths that I've addressed are not confronted, we will lose, period. We will lose. The second is that we've got to focus on that component of health care that concerns the greatest number of people, not exclusively, but the focus should be on cost. We've got to guarantee that we're going to be able to bring costs down. We didn't do that in the mid-90s. The third thing we didn't do is to build an effective coalition. The coalition is there to be built, and we have to find it. The fourth is that we've got far too engrossed in the weeds of, of policy. We've got to stay away from all the detail. We introduced a 1,300-page bill. It should have been 13 pages, not 1,300. We need to delegate the responsibility. As I said a moment ago, Congress doesn't have the capacity to do it. We have to stay on the offensive rather than allow opponents of change to be on the offensive. We have to have single-minded focus. What would happen in 93 was we laid the bill down in October and we didn't get to it until March. Well, by then the bill was defeated. It was over. We could have stopped right there because it had been devastated. It had been shot down by every special interest in the country and you wouldn't even have recognized the bill by March. We also need to use budgetary protection to bring the threshold for passage in the Senate from 60 votes down to 51 votes. And I can talk more about that in the future if you wish. We need the leadership and we need to find common ground. We need to find common ground. And we have to be looking to find that common ground now, not, not next year at this time. If we wait that long, chances are we will have missed our opportunity. Nelson Mandela is probably one of my favorite of all leaders, at least in contemporary times. He said a lot of things that I can agree with. But he said something a few years ago that really, I thought, resonated and is applicable here. He said, some things always seem impossible until they are done. Well, I think that's exactly what we ought to think of with health care. Yes, it looks impossible. Yes, it is uphill. 
Yes, it is likely that we're going to have a lot of trouble getting our act together this time, just as we did in the past. But with the right leadership and with the right strategy, we will get this done. Thank you all very much. Now it's time for questions from the Sokolo audience for Tom Daschle. Hi, my name is Bonnie Bruman. Another mythology that you mentioned, you touched on briefly, that we have the best health care system. The other mythology is that people say, oh, the people in Europe, they don't really like their health care system. They don't get operations. I have family in Canada, England, and France. And as much as they gripe, I say, at the end of the day, would you change it for my health care system? None of them would change it. So my question to you is, we have models in other countries that work. Medicare works. And we saw... In the Depression, Roosevelt was able to mobilize this country to put people to work, which we could do here. We need jobs. We could put those people to work in IT to help the administrative costs. We have models we could follow to build this. I know that you're working on the Obama campaign, I believe. Is it one person that can spur this? And how do you get people to fight those myths? Is it advertising? Is it publicity? And is it substantive talk? And thank you very much for bringing this issue to the front. Well, that's a very good question. And, and to the first part of your question, let me just say that I could have expanded on, on the myth with regard to uh, the quality of care we have. First day access to providers in this country doesn't even rank in the top ten. In other words, at least a dozen countries have better first day access, if you're sick, getting to a doctor than we have in the United States. That's statistically borne out and it can be proven. I've got some great slides in my presentation about that very point. But it's a myth. And you're right. The, the level of satisfaction is much, much higher in most other countries than it is here. But to your, the second part of your question, it really is leadership. You know, we've, we've shown with good leadership, with a Roosevelt or with a Lyndon Johnson in, in, in the context of health care and civil rights, what a good leader can do. I think our, our people now are yearning for better leadership. They're yearning for an opportunity to, to try to take on these challenges, and we have so many. I could have spent another passion of mine is climate and energy, and I could have spent another hour just talking about that. But we have so lacked good leadership for so long that I think the American people say, look, bring it on. I, we'll, we'll sacrifice. We'll do anything. We've got to start solving these problems. Hi, my name is Kimberly Sinclair, and I was a member of the military, so I've been in a federal health care system myself. I also work in public health. I'm a health teacher, so I'm one of that 3% that you talked about as far as preventative. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about a specific plan, maybe, or how government, I guess, or we as citizens would fight the opposition that clearly benefits from keeping people sick as far as uh, the preventative side because clearly sickness is more profitable than wellness. Well, it's more profitable today in part because we've made it more profitable. And I think the degree of profit and incentivization that exists today is largely a function of our lack of appreciation of how important wellness can be. 
and how nice it would be. And it goes all the way through the system. You know, doctors who are specialists in heart transplants get paid a whole lot more than family doctors and primary care providers. You know, I'd like to incent primary care providers at that level. I'd like, I'd like somebody to, to say, you know what, I want to go into medicine and I want to be a primary care, I want to be a family practice doctor. But, but that's becoming harder and harder to do because of the, the financial remuneration, and it's so different. Uh, surgeons and specialists, internists get three or four times the income that a family practitioner gets today. And so we have to change that. And God bless you for being in, in education and teaching wellness. You know, one of the biggest challenges we face, and, and I know you could speak volumes about it, is obesity. We have a huge obesity problem in this country. The life expectancy in this country is going down in large measure because of obesity. So we can't just expect our health care system to solve this problem alone. We've got to have more of you. We've got to give you the reinforcements so that we can teach wellness at a younger age, and schools ought to go back to teaching physical ed and having the kind of physical activity that, that we've gotten away from. We need that in schools as well. Hi, my name is Ted Haptigaber. Uh, my question is about special interests, not only special interests in the sense of lobbyists and Congress, but special interests in the sense of advertising and the relationship with the media. I think the media is generally reluctant to bite the feeding hand. How can we conquer that? Well, that's, that is a hard one because I, I, I don't know about you, but I, I get so tired of hearing all these pharmaceutical ads on television. The only thing worse are political ads. Uh, but, but I think that the pharmaceutical ads, uh, I don't want my grandkids to hear half of them. They're pretty explicit these days, and, and uh, I, I just think it's, uh, it's really uh, too bad. And, and unfortunately now... The drug companies actually spend more on advertising than they do on research. And so it is, it is appalling to me that, that we would spend more on marketing than we do on trying to build better products. But that's what's going on today. This is a country that I should say that, that values its freedom of speech and freedom of expression. And it's hard to keep people from, uh, from that. But you could build an incentive. You could say that, that for every dollar over and above what you spend on research, that you spend on marketing, you're not going to be able to deduct it. from a. It's not a tax-deductible item. Now, that's, that may be uh, hard to pass, but I would do that. I would say, look, we want you to spend more money on research, less money on another Viagra ad, and I think everybody would be better off if we did that. Thank you all very much. I've enjoyed this very much. Great question. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to Tom Daschle. This is Socalo Radio, the on-air home of the Socalo Public Square Lecture Series, LA's free, eclectic, and roving cultural forum. I'm Claudia Vasquez. Socalo Radio is supported by a generous grant from the James Irvine Foundation and by the California Endowment. Catch us again next Sunday, or we'll see you at one of our free live events around town. For more information, go to SocaloLA.org. That's Z-O-C-A-L-O-L-A dot O-R-G. The executive producer for Socalo Radio is Peter Stenzel. Douglas Gary is our engineer. Thank you for tuning in.
for some ideas on things to do, where to go, and what to see? Sign up for KPCC's monthly arts and culture newsletter. Delivered to your inbox every month, it contains information on the Southland's cultural happenings. Visit kpcc.org and click on the newsletter's link to sign up. Here's a chance to shrink the carbon footprint of your...